Welcome to the Retzel Health Law Hotspot. Health Law Hotspot is a podcast for physicians and health professionals that covers the legal issues and trends that affect the healthcare industry. Hi, everyone. This is Erica Adler from Retzel and Andrus. This is the Health Law Hotspot. I'm here with my partner, Hillard Sterling. He is part of our business litigation department, and he's also chair of the firm's technology and cyber law group. And today we're going to have a great discussion about some of the issues that healthcare providers in particular are facing when it comes to cybersecurity. That could involve hackers, that could involve um, AI, it could involve other types of threats that are posed in particular in the world of healthcare, but we can also talk about kind of the world beyond because certainly these are threats to everyone, even us here at this law firm, right? So sure. let's jump right into it and thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today. Thank you, Erica. Really pleasure to be here and look forward to talking about healthcare cybersecurity issues that every doctor, physician, practice group has to be concerned about and doing something about. Great. All right. So let's start with telling everyone out there, why in particular do you think that doctors and dentists and other health care providers that are out there, why are they vulnerable to hackers? There are really two reasons why they're especially vulnerable. One is that the information that they generate and the patient information and data that they keep is extremely valuable to hackers. Um, hackers steal this information from organizations and, and providers, and then they put it on the dark web, as they call it, which is the black market of uh, data information that is stolen from various uh, companies and other sources. Healthcare information uh, gets a premium price on the black market. And the reason is because it's so valuable for hackers and other bad actors out there. It's chock full of sensitive information that they can use to either extort or um, uh, commit fraud or you know, just uh, commit wire fraud or just to steal someone's identity and open up accounts. But it's also healthcare information. So it's, it's particularly susceptible to um, extortion, uh, bribery, other types of misconduct that these hackers uh, often engage in. Uh, the other reason why it, it's such an important issue for healthcare providers is that really, generally speaking, healthcare providers are low-hanging fruit because their cybersecurity protections typically are, are lacking. Uh, and that's no knock on healthcare providers, but typically they're practice groups that don't have the kind of technological infrastructure that many of the larger companies have in place, uh, companies that have their own IT department numbering and dozens or hundreds of people engaging in around the clock work to protect information. That's not usually what's in place at, at healthcare providers, especially those that are uh, smaller, mid-size. These hackers know that. They know that it's gonna be relatively easy to penetrate the systems. It's going to be relatively easy for them to engage in what they call phishing scams, where they get doctors or physicians to click on a link. Uh, they can get in these systems relatively easy. So it's the combination of the extreme value of the information they're stealing, as well as the fact that it's relatively easier for them to steal it that makes doctors, physicians, healthcare providers really a focused uh, targets for these bad actors. Right. And I imagine that, um, you know, most small practices 
Um, they probably do, you know, they should be doing some training and have some protection in place. But um, I know you and I know that even at our law firm, we are required to watch videos and do training. And it's still very easy to be fooled. You know, you click on a link, it sounds like maybe it's somebody in your office who needs help, right? Uh, or a patient that needs help. And often doctors are, you know, very busy and hurried. They may not be wondering whether it's legit or not. So, uh, and of course it can be done from handheld devices. So even on the go, they might be clicking on that. And I can totally envision a lot of our clients just kind of clicking it and not even realizing that it's, uh, you know, it's a gotcha. Right. Very true. Very true. And it extends even farther beyond just the doctors and physicians, because um, what these bad actors and, and these hackers do is they target administrative assistance, uh, temps, third parties. Uh, they find uh, other people who may not have taken those training courses or may not have paid enough attention to them. And the sophistication of these phishing scams is getting so extremely high level. And a lot of these hackers, in fact, as you mentioned with AI, they're using artificial intelligence to mimic uh, either someone who's internal, say a CFO, a CEO, uh, they'll mimic that person's emails, they'll mimic a, a third party's emails, they'll mimic a patient's emails. They're on social media, so they learn about these patients, they learn about how they speak, how they communicate, what, what's going on in their lives. And that enables them to craft these phishing emails that look completely genuine but they're anything but, and it results, all they need is one click. And that's why it's so important to take some steps that right. we'll be talking about soon to protect right. themselves. And, and it's not about intelligence either. I mean, no. you can be, you can watch, you know, a million videos and know in your mind what you can and can't do, and they could still get you. I had yeah. a couple of, I had an example, I, we watched the video and I was told, you know, if you get an email from someone and you weren't expecting it, you know, follow up. So I literally generated a brand new email to the lawyer that sent me something. And I said, Hey, I just got an email from you. Um, you know, I just want to make sure it came from you. And they responded, yes, I'm sending you that document to review. I sent a separate email and they responded and it still turned out to be um, a bad email. Um, so they, their email account was actually hacked. So even some of those recommendations where they say, you know, gen don't respond to the email, do a new email, you know, is not going to be safe. Um, I have gotten, you know, emails like that before and multiple times, I guess, really, unless you can call and reach that person directly, you don't really know what's legit or not legit. So there's a little bit of trusting that goes on. Is, is there really anything out there that can, ultimately protect you from any of that? Or is it just a mixture of common sense and better technology? It really is a, a common sense uh, technology combination that's going to help people get through and, and detect these scams before they work. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, you sent a separate email. That's terrific. That's exactly right. Uh, it's ironic almost in that the best security goes back to the most primitive uh, measures of communication. And that is picking up the telephone. Uh, these hackers, what they do is they get in the middle of the email communication line. So both parties who are communicating think they're speaking with each other and the other one, but they're actually communicating through the hacker. So unless someone picks up the phone and bypasses that wall that's between them and reaches out in some direct way that avoids the technology of email and other technological means of communication because right to voice to voice, 
um, mm -hmm. then there's a real risk of, of having that hacking scheme work because they, they are very smart and sophisticated at this. The days are gone where it was some, somebody in, in, in his mom's basement doing this. Uh, right. These are sophisticated, sometimes nation state actors, uh, otherwise very talented, uh, tech savvy people who are usually three or four steps ahead of the game. So what kind of cases are you seeing where healthcare providers are getting hacked um, and I guess the question is, what could they have done differently? And if this does happen, what should they be doing that they may not realize they need to do? Uh, great questions. And, and that is really top of mind, I think, for any provider. The, the cases involve um, all kinds of hacking. And, and the one that's really famous and, and well-known now and, and still is a very effective tool is ransomware. These hackers uh, get someone to click on a link, and the malware that they infiltrate into the system locks the system up unless and until the provider pays a ransom, uh, where they get an encryption key to unlock the system. Now, there's always the challenge if they pay the ransom, will they actually get their data unfrozen? Will they actually get an encryption key? Uh, so th there's a lot of um, decision making to be done and really should be done in conjunction with outside counsel and an insurance company before anyone pays any ransom, because that money may go out the door and then the hacker says, oh, thank you very much. I'd like 10 times that now. Um, what can they do to stop this? There are various measures, but the very first step is for healthcare providers to understand what their legal duties are in the first place. What do they need to do to comply with their legal obligations? And these legal duties are in various uh, places on various levels. Sometimes there are uh, legal duties about which most providers know, such as HIPAA. Um, but there are multiple laws that apply to this. There are other regulatory uh, guidelines that apply to healthcare information. State laws are, are now very focused on the protection of healthcare information. And on top of or underlying all of those legal duties is the a duty that permeates all of the law, and that's the duty of reasonableness under negligence theory, which means you could be held liable if you're not acting reasonably. If you're not acting reasonably, you're being negligent. What does that mean? It means different things in different contexts. So you need to be really very careful. You need to, these providers need to consult with outside counsel um, to understand what does reasonableness mean? What does it mean? Uh, to protect your data in a reasonable way in my context. That is what I do, but what my practice is, what kind of data I have. So the first step is to know what you're supposed to satisfy, what kind of legal duties. And then the second is to undertake various actions to satisfy those. And they run the gamut from ensuring that you have the right policies and procedures in place. And there are policies that govern all kinds of use, transmission, and storage of data. Um, you need to have, for example, very clear policies on how employees should be using their emails, how they should be using their laptops, uh, how they should be communicating when they're in and outside the office, what kind of uh, information should they have stored on their devices, on their mobile devices as well. Then you need to undertake something that you alluded to, Erica, and it's very important, that's training. Train, train, train. There's no such thing as enough training. And that's going to be something that a, a, a plaintiff's lawyer, if they challenge you, will try to hold uh, you for liable for if you don't do enough of it. Because you can have the best policies and procedures in the world, but if your employees don't know what they are, or if your employees don't know how to follow them, then that's actually a bad thing. 
um, to, to have the policies in the first place because you're, you're setting yourself up for defeat. You also need to make sure that you're undertaking what they call um, incident response plans. This is a playbook for what we do if and when we're hacked. It's a step-by-step -step game plan. Okay, we, we figure out, we hire the forensics firm. First of all, we call our insurance company. Hopefully you have cyber insurance. That's another important legal um, obligation that everyone's satisfied. You need to have protective cyber insurance. But you need to call the insurance company, call your uh, outside counsel or have the insurance company get an outside counsel to what they call breach coach the, the company or the provider through the process. That's important for two reasons. One is that it enables you to say, I'm relying on my counsel. And you want to be able to say that if you're ever challenged. My lawyer told me to do that. That's very important. And also, it allows the lawyer to manage the entire breach response under the attorney-client communication privilege. So you can keep all that information confidential. You don't have to hand it over in discovery if a plaintiff's lawyer sues you or a regulator is looking into it. You can um, manage the communications carefully to keep them privileged. So it's all those different steps that you need to undertake, the policies, the training, the incident response plans, uh, testing those incident response plans in what we call tabletop exercises, which are mock breach um, activities. You, we, you have different scenarios of how you get hacked and you run through the playbook, you run through the incident response plan and see what you did well and what you didn't. Again, that needs to be done with outside counsel present. Otherwise, you're just generating information that won't be privileged. And you're going to hand it off to the plaintiff's lawyer who will try to do you harm with that in court. So all those measures are critically important to protect yourself and to prepare for what unfortunately is inevitably a data breach. So do you see a lot of healthcare providers um, ending up with data breaches? Um, and if so, what do you see as being, uh, I guess, the main reason that those breaches occurred? Was it lack of training, lack of policies? Um, and, you know, how do you help them respond, I guess, is the question. Yeah, uh, well, the reason why most of these breaches happen is human error. It, it's just the easy way around it. Most healthcare providers have good technologists that they've hired who put in very strong breach protection technologies, you know, from firewalls to uh, double, triple authentication and all, all the bells and whistles of the right technologies. But as you and I were chatting about earlier, really all those technologies go to waste when someone does something that was a mistake and clicks on a bad email or otherwise gives an intruder the red carpet into the information system. So that's where I'm seeing these incidents. It's almost always a, a phishing scam and a bad click on an on evil email. Um, once that happens, uh, there are two different tracks that need to happen. One is the breach response that involves getting the insurance company and that attorney I was describing as the breach coach to manage, or I say quarterback the effort. Um, again, to make sure it's being done right and in legal compliance with all of the duties out there, but also so the information's protected under that protective umbrella of the attorney-client privilege. And then the other track is defending against plaintiffs when they sue. You know, it's really disheartening, but it's inevitable and, and it permeates the entire legal landscape when you see what happens out there, because these companies, these healthcare providers, they're victimized twice. 
first by the hacker and then by a plaintiff's lawyer trying to make money off of it. Happens all the time. Whenever you see a large or even a, a medium size or sometimes small healthcare provider get hacked, you can bet that you're going to see a class action lawsuit within several weeks from a plaintiff's lawyer who heard about the hack. And you know, these, these breaches need to be reported. And I, I know you know that intimately, they need to be reported to regulators. Well, these um, plaintiff's lawyers are reading those reports. They're watching. And what they do is they try to find a patient and they'll find a patient whose data may have been compromised and they write up what they call a class action lawsuit. Class action lawsuit is a lawsuit on behalf of the whole class of um, plaintiffs, which are patients, where the this one uh, aggrieved former patient will tell a plaintiff's lawyer, I'm upset that my data was hacked. I spent X hours trying to get data security protection, looking at my credit reports. I had to buy um, credit monitoring services. And the plaintiff's lawyer takes that little nugget and they write this massive class action lawsuit seeking millions of dollars, arguing that these uh, patients, current and former, have suffered, suffered damages. And, but they're, what they're really after, Erica, are attorney's fees. That's what this whole industry is built on. The plaintiff's lawyers are filing these class action lawsuits, not because they really do care about a patient who has been really damaged. Most of the time, patients haven't been damaged at all. They can't prove that anybody's data was actually sold on the dark web. What, what they do is allege that there's an impending fear of harm. And there's a lot of courts who hold that's enough. Just the impending fear, clearly imminent is the standard in federal court. Is there clearly imminent uh, harm? And it's not hard for a plaintiff's lawyer to write very creatively uh, a complaint that portrays clearly imminent harm. Um, this courts, I would say though, are getting better and stronger at realizing that a lot of this is just a scam to make a ton of attorney's fees. And mm -hmm. they're getting better at, at trying to keep these cases focused on plaintiffs who truly have been aggrieved, truly have been damaged in some tangible way, not somebody who's just mm -hmm. worried and therefore giving a plaintiff's lawyer the chance to earn hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, in attorney's fees. So, you know, recently I had somebody on, um, like Debsy, he's great, and we were talking about asset protection, and mm -hmm. he's a big proponent of making sure you have enough cybersecurity Terms. Have you seen practices, you know, a lot of people assume they have it, they may have a little bit in their malpractice policy, they aren't necessarily buying a separate policy, but they are not necessarily that large. Um, yeah. What is happening or experiences at all, if the plaintiff's lawyers are able to achieve a judgment that's in excess of whatever insurance that practice managed to handle, what is the threat that this poses to the healthcare providers and their practices? The simple answer is that it's an existential threat that can really crater a lot of these healthcare providers who are doing such great work in helping patients. Then you have this one bad instance and the financial exposure can be debilitating, uh, can be absolutely massive. So cyber insurance is critical to ensure that the insurance company is the one who will be hiring the lawyer, paying the lawyer, and ultimately settling the case at the end of the day. Challenge there is a lot of these providers don't have adequate cyber coverage. 
you mentioned professional liability insurance, and that, that's a critical part of practicing uh, medicine. Absolutely. The problem there is a lot of courts have held that professional liability policies don't cover cyber breaches because those breaches were um, occurring in connection with the practice of medicine. It's the same thing with our industry, the practice of law. There are a lot of decisions out there where lawyers get hacked and then they get sued and make a claim under the policy. And if they don't have specific cyber coverage, a lot of courts hold that these breaches and the damages are not covered because the hack was not done in connection with the practice of law. It was done in connection with saving information, clients' information, which is disconnected from the actual practice. The same is true in medicine. So what I urge all of your clients and anyone who's listening uh, to this podcast, make sure you're checking your cyber coverage. Talk to a broker. Brokers are fantastic sources because they know the market. They know these policies backward and forward. And cyber, even if you have a cyber policy, there's all kinds of minefields in there. There are sublimits that cap out the payments that an insurance company would make under various scenarios. There are multiple endorsements. We've all seen insurance policies there. They're littered with endorsements that change the coverage. You need a good broker to take a close look at that. And ideally, a cyber insurance coverage lawyer, if there are... If, real issues in play here uh, to make sure that there is coverage if and when something bad happens, that the deductible is something that is acceptable. It's not a million or a $5 million deductible, which won't help many of these providers. And that the sublimits don't cap out coverage um, under scenarios that are very likely to happen. So cyber insurance really is a very important safety net that every healthcare provider needs to be exploring. So when we're talking about all these steps that should be taken to protect your practice, uh, if you take them, I assume you've got a defense. You you were reasonable. You took, you know, all these steps. Uh, what other defenses really are there? Uh, a rogue employee. Um, I mean, what what else could there be really that you can even argue other than you took reasonable steps? There Is there are a couple. Yeah, great, uh, great question, because no one wants to get wrapped up in a lawsuit with defenses that don't get determined and addressed by the court for months, if not years. So defending that you've acted reasonably is good, but that's not going to get rid of the case. It's gonna, the case is going to go all the way through motions to dismiss. It's going to go into discovery, which puts it months out before you get to the point of being able to file a motion, like a summary judgment motion, to actually get rid of the case. So you want defenses that have a chance of success on a motion to dismiss, which is the first motion that's filed early, early in the case. In fact, it's the first filing, uh, aside from an appearance by an attorney. So what defenses really are strong in a motion to dismiss? One of the most principally important defenses is standing. I've alluded to this earlier, because standing means, does the plaintiff have the right to sue? Uh, in federal and state courts, uh, courts, and sometimes it's embedded in the constitutions, and it's here in the federal constitution, it's Article 3, and the Illinois state constitution is, is there as well. And that is, has the plaintiff suffer, suffered a tangible, cognizable monetary injury of some sort? And again, the case law is a little loose on that, but if you can show and, and argue, based on the plaintiff's own pleading, based on the complaint itself, there has not been one dollar of proven or alleged monetary harm. You can file a motion to dismiss 
early in the case, alleging and arguing the absence of standing. That, that's really the best way. In fact, I just had a motion to dismiss on standing grounds granted by a court in a case in which I'm defending a very significant healthcare care provider here in Illinois who was hacked because of a ransomware attack, a very well-known ransomware attack. The court threw it out because the plaintiff did what I was describing earlier, found a, a former patient who really hadn't suffered any harm, uh, but they tried to write creatively around that to create the illusion of harm. Uh, the judge uh, saw through that, dismissed the case. They tried again. I have another motion to dismiss pending. I think it has a really good chance of, of getting granted. And around the second motion to dismiss, you have a chance that the court may throw it out with prejudice, which means the case is done. They can't refile it. They can't try again. So standing is really important. Uh, and then the other uh, strong defenses early on in the case would have to do with contracts. If you have um, ways to find other sources of liability for the, the breach, uh, a third party. Blame it on provider. someone else. Yeah. Well, yeah. So really, <laughs> uh, it sounds like it's a deflection, but it, it's a real genuine uh, way to put fault where it belongs. And that is uh, on a source that um, really was the cause or could be alleged to be the cause of the harm. And that may be, for example, a technology vendor that your cybersecurity vendor that didn't put the right protections in place to stop the uh, ransomware or stop the human from making the error. It, there needs to be safety nets under that as well. So there are different types of um, third party claims you can make to bring in culpable parties and other insurance companies that may write a check to settle the case at the end of the day. So there's a lot of strategies you can employ. I, no one should ever think about giving up. We don't quit on this. Uh, we get stronger with adversity. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's always ways to defend strongly against these cases and to do so early on so you're not stuck in the morass of litigation for months or years, uh, which no one wants. Well, great advice. So I hope everybody who's listening has learned a little something here, which is you can take steps to prevent this cybersecurity breach occurring and what to do when it does occur, which is to call Pillard and let him kind of talk you through it. I find with a lot of our clients, they may um, either just figure it's not a big deal and they'll just kind of you know retrain and not realize that there's a potential risk out there, right? That's one issue. The other issue is that I find a lot of our clients might be, uh, especially if they themselves uh, are the ones that open something they shouldn't have opened. And if the hacker uh, that goes after them personally, I've had clients in the past who uh, were told that somehow because of what they clicked on, they were now guilty of doing something and they needed to send a certain dollar amount and they sent more and more money over a period of time. And you would, you know, why? Because people are embarrassed when they think they've made a mistake, they think they're going to get in trouble, they think they've done something wrong. And really the one message here is that your legal counsel, we're your allies, uh, we support you, we'll help you resolve the issues, and it's don't keep it secret. And also to be proactive, so any money, and I know especially smaller practices, they don't wanna spend a lot of money on uh, getting legal guidance or uh, getting security training more than you know what they could buy online or whatever it is, but it can cost you more not to spend the money ahead of time than it could cost you if you have to hire someone like Hillard to defend you in one of these cases. So you wanna kind of be smart about where you're spending your resources, uh, and making you know great decisions 
on who your vendors are, et cetera. And then you also want to be smart about letting us know if something didn't go quite as planned early on. As you mentioned, we got to protect, you know, everything under attorney-client privilege. We don't want you believing when somebody tells you that now you're part of something and you have to pay so they'll keep it secret or that the FBI or the IRS are coming after you. And, you know, that is such a scary thing when you feel your career's at risk, your family's at risk. It's not true. Okay, it is just not true. There's nothing you can't tell your lawyer about that we can't help you find a solution for. And there's just been a few of these recently. So I kind of want to emphasize that, uh, you know, our clients are not alone out there. We're your partners. And uh, it can be really scary. I'm sure many of your clients are, are really kind of freaked out when they get sued or, you know, somebody gets hurt as a result of this. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Two points to add on that to punctuate it because those are all spot on points. Um, one is the ounce of prevention. Uh, Axiom works very well here. Uh, you're right. A little bit of investment up front can save hundreds of thousands or, or millions of dollars of damages later. Um, the other point that you make is so true um, is that don't hide from this. And don't try to undertake self-help. Uh, and, and don't don't be embarrassed um, and that you've made a mistake. That that's the first step is to get it to somebody, get to get it to a professional. I do this all the time. Um, we're not here to judge anybody. We're here to protect you. So the, the first step is to minimize the damage and try to ensure that you are protected without regard to whether or not you made a mistake or, or whether someone got some bad um, personal sensitive piece of information about you. Let it out because the, if you try to hide from it, it will only get worse. Uh, and the best example on that, unfortunately, is a is a sad story of um, uh, an Uber, the chief security officer, who when his company was hacked, when Uber was hacked, he decided to engage in self-help. Uh, the record, just Google Uber chief security officer prison, and you'll find out the story <laughs> about this poor gentleman who thought that he could handle this whole problem by himself. He didn't report the breach um, properly. And to make a long story short, he's going to prison uh, for hiding the information. Um, concealment is not a strong defense, uh, and it's not going to serve you well. So as Eric is saying, uh, you get to uh, one of us, get to a professional out there who can help minimize the damage. Don't try to hide it. and Don't try to deal with it yourself. It will only get worse. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this information. I urge anybody listening here who has follow-up questions or wants to know more about how Hillard can help to reach out to him. His information will be shared with this post. And we thank all of you for joining us at the Health Law Hotspot. I'm Erica Adler, and we hope you'll join us next time. If you want to see some of our other podcasts, you can also check them out at ralaw.com. Thanks for joining us, and thanks, Hillard. Hello, everybody. This is Hillard Sterling with a brief update and clarification. Uh, earlier in the podcast, actually toward the end, I mentioned the story, um, which is a sad one, of an Uber CSO who was convicted of hiding information regarding a data breach. Uh, on May 4th, uh, the CSO actually was able to avoid jail time. Prosecutors were seeking 15 months um, a prison time for this gentleman, and uh, the judge had compassion uh, and sentenced him to three years of probation uh, with a $50,000 fine and 200 hours of community service. So while the CSO was able to avoid jail time, 
uh, the lessons learned remain the same, and that is don't cover up the information. The cover-up is always worse than the crime. Uh, if and when you have a data breach, report it, be honest, be transparent, uh, and don't try to hide the information because it just makes the problem worse. Thank you, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and hope to talk with you soon. Thanks much. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Retzel Health Law Hotspot does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have.